Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 94. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Maintaining long-term success requires motivation in all types of forms, and you also have to have a mindset of never quitting. And our guest this episode, Debbie Antonelli, learned that from an early age as she now enters her 31st season as a basketball analyst. Debbie would play for legendary coach Kay Yao at NC State before embarking on a career in athletic administration. But once she put on the headset, she knew she was hooked. As a national basketball analyst averaging 80 college basketball games a season, she's considered an expert on the women's game, both collegiate and professional, covering the game for ESPN, CBS, Raycom, and Westwood One. She has broadcasted in the WNBA since its inception in 1996, and she's no stranger to the men's game either, where she's also called games throughout her career, and in 2017, she became the first woman to call a men's NCAA tournament game since 1995. Here's episode 94 with Debbie Antonelli. Debbie, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with me here. I greatly appreciate it since the time I got to meet you a few months ago uh, down in Columbia at the USA Women's Basketball Practice there with Dawn Staley. And it's just amazing how fast time goes that we're already into college basketball right now. But you're also 31 years into covering college basketball and calling games. So after 31 years, does it even still feel like work to you or are you just just fully enjoying it? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. And uh, no, I don't think I've worked a day in my life. <laughs> I, I feel so lucky to have the job I have, and I'm very fortunate. Uh, my timing has always felt like it's been good, and uh, I'm very excited about my 31st season on the air calling college basketball. Well, I know you have to be, and I'm right there with you in terms of just when you are able to talk sports, talk about basketball, as basketball is my passion as well, it definitely makes time go by even faster. But let's walk back through your journey then before you got into calling games and before you were a star at NC State under legendary coach Yao there. How did you gravitate towards sports growing up and when did basketball become a passion of yours? Well, I'm, I'm the oldest of three girls. My dad was quite an athlete in high school. My mom was a cheerleader. My parents are, were terrific parents and still are today um, in, in raising the three of us to not be quitters. Um, no matter what we tried and we tried everything, we had to, to play it out, uh, whether it was tap dancing or Girl Scouts, things that I didn't want to do, but my sister, who was a year younger than me, did. Um, I, I did those and tried them and I didn't like them. My mother would never let me quit. Um, she made me stick it out. So I, I dabbled in a lot of different things, but the first team that I was on was a little league baseball team. There were not options for girls in the town that I lived in at High Park, New York. And, uh, I tried out for little league. I was good enough to be able to play. I could lay down a bunt and I played second base when I was 10 years old and, I played for three years in the summers, and uh, I loved it. And um, then I, I, I 
played some CYO basketball through the church league in the town that we lived in. But it wasn't until I was going into the eighth grade when my parents moved us from Hyde Park, New York, to Cary, North Carolina, that I had gone over to NC State, and I saw these college women playing basketball in college and playing at a very high level, and there was this thing called a scholarship that you could get if you were good enough. <laughs> that's right. And when I learned about that, that's when I decided and made up my mind. While I played everything, I played volleyball and softball in high school as well, um, and, of course, I worked out, so I ran a lot, and, and I played tennis, and, you know, I played everything growing up. Um, but when I saw that and had that experience at NC State, that's when I made up my mind that that's what I wanted to do. And what was that like, though, when you're out there early on, when you talk about being on the baseball team, Little League baseball team, and you're a female in a male-dominated, obviously, sport? Was that transition tough, or did you have a tough time fitting in, so to speak? Well, there was no question. Um, There was one other girl that was in the league who happened to be on my team, Um, and so there were two of us, which was very odd to have any girls in the league, right? Because there weren't any girls playing. It was all boys. Uh, I do have very strong memories of um, things like me standing in a batter's box and the guys throwing at me. Uh, I do have very vivid memories of um, playing out in the field and people from the stands yelling, get that girl out of here. She doesn't belong. Um, I did play in the um, Little League All-Star game, so I was very good. So I, I was capable of playing at a high level with the boys, equally with the boys at that time. And um, I, I remember hearing those things, but remember, I was never allowed to quit. So I think my resolve was back then, my resilience was was sort of formed that, you know, this is something I like to do and this is what I want to do, and uh, there's no reason why I can't be doing it. I don't ever remember having conversations with my parents about, you know, people are yelling from the stands and and you're just going to have to, you know, decide if you're going to take it or not. I'm sure if you ask my mother, I'm sure she wasn't very pleased about listening to some of the things that she had to hear. Of course. And I know my dad probably didn't like it either, but um, I remember thinking, you know, that's okay. I'm just going to prove them wrong, you know, that I I do belong. Because you're hearing those type of things and is that – something that's carried on throughout your life, trying to prove people wrong if they doubted you? I think um, it helped shape a lot lot of my resolve, my attitude, my fortitude, my mental toughness, which are all things and attributes that I consider to be positives for me. Um, You can't work in a male-dominated sport your whole life and not develop some of those um, and and have some people that are critical. But I'll be honest with you, you know, yes, all of those experiences absolutely helped shape and form my um, my attitude, not so much my career path, but maybe my attitude or my belief that I could. And today, 31 years into broadcasting, working for ESPN and CBS, my attitude right now is I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm trying to improve. So I feel like I've come full, full circle on all of that. Well, that's an interesting perspective uh, from that standpoint. And when you're going through this this journey, playing all of these different things, not allowed to quit, was there something that just fit for you in terms of basketball? You realized you're really good and then the love came or was it the love came for basketball and then you realized how good you were? I think I love the game. Uh, I love playing. So I like I love being on a team. I loved all the aspects of teammates. I loved being on uh, playing and competing at the highest level. I wanted to be the best that I could be. 
I remember being driven um, with all those attributes when I was younger, and um, I loved playing everything. And I was fortunate enough that my high school friends, which are still my dear friends today, you know, we all sort of moved from one sport to another and um, picked up a few other people along the way while we were going from season to season. And um, we just we just had a good group that loved to, to compete. And, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of tough dynamics with them, with the socialization of the female athlete at times. And I recognize those as I'm older. Um, but um, I, I think I just love to play. And I saw that I could play at a high level and I competed. And I knew that I, if I worked hard enough that I might have a chance. I knew when I was in high school that if I became a really good shooter, somebody was going to have to take me on their team, that I was not going to be denied. <laughs> I, might, I might lack some other things. I might not be the tallest or the fastest, but I, I will be the hardest worker. I will be in the best shape. I will be the best shooter and those things that I, that are things that I can control. And when you talk about that hard working, what did that look like for you before you got to NC State to try to showcase your talents and improve? What, what type of training did you do in terms of getting better? You know, I went back then. I didn't get to play summer travel ball, so um, there wasn't the AAU wasn't there when I was coming up. So that wasn't an option for me. So um, I worked out. I, I worked. I I ran. I worked on drills. I went to camps. Back then, basketball camps were learning the fundamentals of the game, and so you got skill work, and then you would go home and practice and. You know, I chased the basketball down the driveway. I didn't have a rebounder, a shot coach, a nutritionist. Uh, I didn't have a strength coach. I didn't have all those things. Um, and, and so I worked out on my own. Uh, I ran. I lifted weights. Uh, I went in the gym. I tried to figure things out. I asked people for help. Um, I, I asked the guys in the weight room, what am I supposed to do? You know, um, I, I just – I tried to figure it out. I had a, a teammate that was a really good track athlete. And so I'm like, I need to get my mile time down. What are the things I want to do? Would you come out and help me? Would you time me? And I remember doing those things. I also remember my dad coming home from work or my mom and dad both coming home from work. And um, I'd say, hey, dad, you know, I ran whatever and I got it in this time. And he'd be like, that's great. Good job. Now, you know, somebody got a better time than you today. <laughs> you know, and I'd be like, all right, you're probably right, but wow, look what I did. And he's like, that's okay, it's good, but, you know, you could probably do better. So nothing was ever like, you know, you were ever um, completely satisfied. There was always something more or there was one more rep or one other, you know, run that you could make or maybe you could run, you know, another mile. There was always something more. And so there's always this quest for being pushed is sounds like in your family that your parents not only wouldn't allow you to quit, but they also tried to push you each and every time out there. That's exactly right. And, and like I said, my parents are terrific and they're great role models for, for me as a parent and they're terrific grandparents. And those values that they helped instill in all the three of us, my two sisters are things that we, you know, push forward on our own children. You know, I, I want my kids to compete. I want them to work hard, but uh, I'm not going to be interjecting with their coaches. You know, I'm not going to be that parent that calls and says, hey, uh, how come my kid's not playing or what does my kid need to do better? That's the accountability on my own kids. If they want to be better, they need to ask. If my son wants to get more playing time, he needs to work harder. Um, that's, that's what I 
the way I grew up. That's what I think. And uh, I think any parent who's doing the opposite is doing a disservice to their child for their well, total well-being. Agreed. And I think there's an aspect that, unfortunately, you have to have a situation where sometimes your kids are going to fail and they have to learn from that failure rather than the parents coming in there and trying to always rescue them. We all fail. I make mistakes every day, um, but I have to be accountable for the choices I make. I have to be responsible for trying to fix them. I have to know what I did wrong and I have to learn from it. If somebody is always cleaning up my mess, I'm not going to learn anything. Of course. And you mentioned the socialization of female athletics, because you came at a time really before the explosion of women athletics, uh, per se. So describe that. What do you mean by that? I just mean, um, you know, even, you know, we don't really ever talk about the female alpha on the team, but we have no problem talking about the male alpha on a team. And so that would mean, you know, here's the guy, he's the go-to guy, gets all the attention, he wants to take the last shot, he's the person that is um, sort of um, grown up to believe that those are things that he can do. But on the women's side, we don't always do that. It's more, let's get along, let's pass the ball, let's make sure it's an equal opportunity. I don't think the coaches on the women's side on Division One level think that that's probably the way that they want their athletes to come to them. I think they'd rather have their athletes be good teammates, but also have the confidence and and the the experience of being the go-to. You know, when you look at Notre Dame, for example, in women's college basketball winning the national championship last year, is there any question who the alpha is on that team? No. Right? (laughs) We don't talk about Arike Gumbawale like that, but we should. You know, because she deserves to be talked like about like that, and she can handle it. Anything you throw at her, she can handle. And to that point, there's always the debate in terms of men's basketball for the who's the goat from the alpha male perspective, LeBron James or Michael Jordan. But what about from the women's side, from your perspective? Who would you categorize as some of the all-time greats in women's college basketball that could fill that alpha role? I think, uh, you know, I think certainly Ann Myers and Cheryl Miller to go back to UCLA and USC. Um, those would be two women that would come to my mind immediately for everything they've accomplished in our game how, at such a high level at an early time. Uh, and, they, and look, Cheryl Miller was one of the greatest players in the history of our game. There were a lot of people that would have a tough time defending her. She could do everything before 6'3" was away from the basket and handling out front and knocking down perimeter jump shots. Um, I I think, of course, Diana Taurasi is arguably one of the all-time greats. There's no question she might be the best winner we've ever had in the history of our game. I don't know if anybody's won more than her unless you're putting Sue Bird in that category. So, you know, Candace Parker, I think, is a player that a lot of tall women model their game after. At 6'5", the things that she can do away from the basket. I think uh, in the women's college basketball game that, you know, we're we're still just like the guys, the stretch four, the space, the spread offenses, um, bigs handling away from the bucket, more of a European-style look. Um, I feel like we've been doing that for a while on the women's side. Um, So, um, those are some, some names that come to mind when I think about some of the all-time greats, and I know I probably left off a handful of them, but when you look at who's in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame and, and you know, the last class, Tina Thompson and Katie Smith, 
Um, you can you can go right through the list uh, for players: Dawn Staley, uh, Cynthia Cooper, uh, Cheryl Swoops. I mean, there's a whole generation of players that helped the WNBA really launch, and uh, now we're looking for that next generation of players to carry us forward. From my perspective, I wish there was more video and film of Cheryl Miller because I don't think people give her enough credit. That's just my opinion. I think she's the GOAT, and she was way ahead of her time. Well, I played against her in college, and I had never seen anybody like her. Um, She was 6'3", long and athletic. Uh, She could do everything with a basketball. She defended at a high level, and she even dunked. And she competed against her brother, Reggie Miller. Most people (laughs) know about how great he was. Yes. Well, Reggie will tell you the best player in the household in high school was Cheryl. (laughs) I believe it. So what was your experience then when you played against her? Were people somewhat mesmerized as you're out there trying to play against her? Well, I mean, I think she was just ahead of her time. You know, if she was playing in the WNBA, she would have been a player that everyone would have had as a household name. Um, She was just um, able to do things like a guy, and that's totally meant as a compliment because of her athleticism and her length. So for your college career, as you see those women at NC State after you moved to Cary, North Carolina, so was it any question or was there any question that you were going to go to NC State once it came time to go play basketball? (laughs) Well, you know, I I was fortunate enough to get some offers around the state of North Carolina, really nothing that great outside. Uh, But I had been to camps. I had uh, put my focus on studying the NC State players, studying KEL, going to camp and learning. Um, And that was my, you know, that was my dream, that my my wish and dream, my work, everything I, I focused on and visualized was me playing at NC State I sat on the railing right across from the bench on the first row and watched the games while I was in middle school and high school, and and that's what I wanted to do. And I made up my mind that that was what I was going to do. I was going to do everything to make sure that I had an opportunity and I could control the things that I could control. Um, You know, ironically, I had um, an offer from North Carolina and from NC State. I was trying to decide between the two. Uh, NC State had said to me that they were moving in another direction that they were going to recruit someone else. And um, so North Carolina had, um, at that time, I had a scholarship offer. And uh, the scholarship had some papers that went with it that you would sign and send back. But the uh, papers were getting ready to expire. And as those papers were getting ready to expire from the University of North Carolina, I got a call from NC State, and Coach Al had – reached back to me to say that the person that they were recruiting had decided to go somewhere else, and now they were interested in me again. Well, my feelings were so hurt. I mean, my my ego was so bruised, you know, that they didn't want me, and now they want me again, and I've got this chance to go to North Carolina. And so it was um, a little bit, um, a little troublesome for me. <laughs> it was, I remember Going to high school in, uh, you know, in, in Cary, North Carolina, which is situated between Raleigh and Chapel Hill, uh, my high school, I remember in the high school hallways and I'd have people chanting NC State and other people telling me to go to North Carolina. So <laughs> it, had a, it had a little bit of a challenge for me, but um, it was um, a classic conversation between uh, Coach Al and myself when I was in the spring of my senior year and she pretty much got on the phone, and anybody that knows her would know uh, 
you know, that, you know, I'm like, well, first you don't want me, now you want me. And and she's like, Debbie, haven't you always dreamed about playing here? Haven't you gone to my camps? Isn't this what you set your your mind on? Why would you not come here? You know, and and I was like, yes, you're right, you're right. And I decided uh, that's how how we committed back in that day. That wasn't like, (laughs) yes, that's right. The TV show up and um, I've got two baseball hats uh, (laughs) under the table and I'm going to pull one out. That's not what we did. Uh, No, it's definitely not. I would have loved to have seen you do that, though. That would have been priceless. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was one of the best decisions uh, of my life um, to have a four-year experience with her as one of her players. But really, my relationship with her was 30 years from being a recruited athlete, being a camper, playing for her, and then, of course, professionally my career, and uh, also representing her fund. Of course. And I was going to ask you just the impact that she's had on your life. Obviously, it carries far beyond basketball, I should say. So what type of legacy has she left you in terms of what she's been able to provide you in so many different ways? I don't usually speak for other Wolfpack women uh, when I say this, but I think I feel confident that other people in the many decades that she coached there would all feel the same way. We loved her. We would do whatever she asked us to do. We never wanted to disappoint her. She wasn't a yeller or a screamer. She was a teacher. And um, she got her message across that way by her relationships with each of us individually and the way she communicated it. Um, and I'm, I'm saying all this while I'm staring at a picture of her in my, uh, in my office. It's a picture, it's a collage of pictures of her coaching that actually hung in her office that I bought at an auction because I remember going to meet with her in her office. And this picture was one that was right in my line of sight every time I sat down to talk to her. And so when I see this picture, I think about um, all the wonderful things that she helped me as a, a young woman and, and uh, all of her influence in, um, in my many roles that I play, whether it's mom or wife or broadcaster or daughter or sister or anything that I do. Um, Coach Al was a wonderful person and uh, we all really feel blessed to have had the privilege to play for her. And when you got to NC State, though, was there a little bit of uh, an eye-opening experience in terms of this is college basketball, this is a new reality for you? Yes. I couldn't even bench the 45-pound bar (laughs) in the weight room. So I thought Coach Al was going to redshirt me because I couldn't make the cross-court pass as crisp as she wanted it. And uh, I thought, well, you know, but I can shoot it. And so everything that I did in every drill tried to position myself offensively to prove to her that I, you know, was a good offensive player, that the rest of it will come. I will get stronger and, you know, I will, you know, be, I will be a good a coachable teammate. Um, and, um, you know, we did have a conversation about it, but thankfully she decided not to. Uh, so uh, my freshman year I played, this is my, uh, one of my favorite stories about playing at NC State. I played in every game that we played in that year, uh, except the two times that we played the University of North Carolina. And so as for someone knowing the, the past story that I just gave you about <laughs> making my decision between the two, exactly. nobody, that I wanted, nobody that I wanted to play against more. Um, and we're playing North Carolina at home in Raleigh. There's about 5,000 people there. North Carolina and uh, us were both ranked. We're both very good. I'm on the end of the bench. There's about five minutes left in the game. 
And the short version of this is we had a 6-7 player. You weren't supposed to give her the ball on the move. Somebody gave it to her. She got fouled. The officials didn't call it. I jumped up on the end of the bench, and I yelled foul. Well, the two people on each side of me stood up as well. But the official across the court, and there were only two officials then, blew the whistle and made the technical foul sign and went over to the scorer's table to report it. Well, Coach Al was looking at this official like, well, who's the foul? What, what are you calling? What, what is going on? The three of us sit back down, and I'm thinking to myself, there is no way that this is a technical foul on me. <laughs> and the official walks by Coach Al, comes down to me. I have my shooting shirt on. Remember, I hadn't been in the game. Couldn't see my number. And he says, what's your number? Oh. And I said, 12. And at that point, I'm thinking, please don't cry. And who's <laughs> gonna, I'm in big trouble. My dad is going to kill me. And I don't know what Coach Al was going to do, but I thought I was going to be in big trouble. And the best part of the story is that uh, the next day we don't practice. So she has no conversation with me. The following day we're going to watch film. And before we go to watch film, I go to her office and I asked her if I could speak to her. And this is uh, January. I believe it's January of my freshman year. So, you know, I've only been on campus a few months. And I'm still young. And, uh, I said, Coach, I just want to let you know all I said was foul. I didn't say anything else. And um, she said, you know, what seemed like was about 20 minutes of conversation as I shrunk in the couch. I don't think you could even see me by the time she got done. <laughs> uh, the couch had swallowed me up. But uh, she, she said, for me to have a freshman on the end of the bench that didn't get in the game, and I knew what that game meant to you, and, and that – you know, you were that involved and that emotionally engaged in what was happening. She said, I'll take that any day. Just please don't get another technical. <laughs> and I thought she was going to say, bring your shoes, meet me at the track. You know, I thought all these things were going to happen to me for punishment. But she she knew me. She had a relationship with me. And because she knew that this would bother me more than anything that she could ever do to me, she decided that just by talking to me, that would be enough. And um, I, I like to say today that um, – I try to um, use three power words that help me in every decision that I make in any aspect of my life. My three power words are build, serve, and empower. And build and serve are two things that I think she embodied all the time. And I use those as, um, you know, power words to help me. And uh, I also, it also allowed me to have this one claim to fame that no one at NC State has. And I hope that no one will ever have, and that is a player getting a technical foul from the bench, but also allowing me to coin and self-proclaim, I am the best non-stat starter in <laughs> NC State history. That's right. I started for three years, and I have very little stat to show for it. <laughs> well, you're comical as well, but obviously it sounded like, to your point, what you described Coach Yao as a teacher she knew that that was a teaching moment for you rather than a moment just to go get punished. There's no question uh, that that's the wisdom and her experience in dealing with, with young women. And uh, she knew that somehow she must have known that that experience alone would catapult me into other things and give me a chance to um, share that story so that I can help teach other people and, and take advantage of the lessons that I learned from her. Now, did you get any more technical fouls? Uh, not as a player at NC State, no. Okay, so where I've else only did... Had one, 
I only have one other technical foul, Richmond, and that was um, – I, I shamefully hate to say it was in a rec league basketball game <laughs> coaching one of my son's teams. <laughs> well, that's just that competitive spirit coming out, right, Coach? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so after your playing career is over at NC State, you graduate, had you been thinking about being in broadcasting? How did that come about? Broadcasting was not even anywhere a blip on my radar. Um I love sport. I wanted to stay in the game. I didn't think I was good enough to go overseas. There wasn't a professional league here. Um, now I wish I had known. I mean, anybody can go overseas and play. I could have gone overseas to play. My game would have been good enough, but I didn't think it was at that time because I didn't have enough knowledge. And so uh, there was a gentleman named Kevin O'Connell who was an assistant AD at NC State. Coach Al told me to go see him because he had graduated from this place called Ohio University, and he had a master's in sports administration. And I thought, that sounds like something that might be interesting to me. So I went to see Kevin. Kevin is currently at the University of South Carolina. He's an associate AD under Ray Tanner. But I went to see Kevin, and he handed me this directory of alumni and names and jobs of people that have gone through the Ohio University program. It is the number one graduate school program in the country in sports ad. It has been for decades. And um, I went to, through the book and read all the jobs, and I decided that that is something that I wanted to do, and I put my mind on becoming an athletic director at that time. So I went to grad school, was a graduate assistant, had a couple of opportunities to coach, um, decided that I wanted to pursue being an AD, external um, operations from marketing and fundraising and ticket sales and and all that was more my um, personality than sports information was or uh, internal things like business and finance. So that's what I uh, started uh, on a path towards. And broadcasting just happened to be um, an opportunity that came about. And when you say just came about, so what was that like then? I mean, did somebody just say, hey, here, put well, some headsets on and we know you know college basketball, so talk about it. How did it happen? I was, uh, it was November of 1988. I was at the University of Kentucky. I was the director of marketing in the athletic department. I was the first director of marketing. Um, people would not believe that in the late 80s. There were a lot of athletic departments that didn't even have that department yet. It was still evolving, sponsorship and marketing. And, you know, we didn't have um, synergy and branding and all those things back then. It was so different. Uh, but, um, we had a local cable company that came to us at Kentucky and said, hey, we think we can produce sport. And we said, well, if you think you can produce sport, how would you like to try a women's basketball game? And they said we would. And so we allowed them to produce and uh, broadcast basketball games. And my uh, boss at the time said, uh, you know, Debbie, do you want to try to do the game? And I was like, what do you mean do the game? He's like, be the color, be the analyst. I said, yeah, I'd love to. And uh, that's how I got started. And it was kind of like hitting that sweet nine iron right in, <laughs> into the right on the flag. It's just one of those things that once you feel what that feels like, um, and for me, the prep, the study, the film, the on the floor, the game day, uh, the prep, the strategy, all of it was the same as coaching. It was a different avenue than coaching, and you didn't have to deal with the players. And um, I thought this was pretty cool to complement what I was doing. And um, it just ended up becoming a focal point of uh, my career. 
Well, unfortunately, I don't have enough of those uh, sweet nine iron shots that you're describing that hit right at the flag. I need to keep working on my game there, Debbie. <laughs> I'm struggling on that aspect. But when, <laughs> but when you talk about now that love that you had and you, you just it just felt natural to you. So how long was it before you made the decision? I'm going all in on broadcasting. I'm no longer going to go this route of potentially, you know, athletic director uh, position, that broadcasting was where you wanted to go? So uh, I spent eight years in collegiate marketing, four at Kentucky as a director of marketing and four at The Ohio State University as a director of marketing. So I've been at two really good places with two outstanding brands. And all along the way, I had still kept my mind on becoming an athletic director and uh, I was still, I was broadcasting games. And when I got to Ohio State, I went to the local cable company and I said, can you produce sport? They said, we don't know. I said, well, I want you to try. Tell me what it would cost to produce eight women's basketball games in St. John Arena. And they came back with a number. I can't even remember what it was. So I always say it was like $50,000. It wasn't, um, you know, certainly what the costs are today. And uh, I went out and I sold $50,000 worth of advertising. So I created an inventory package created a TV um, network, if you will, because we did syndicate our games uh, past one affiliate. Uh, and um, as a director of marketing, I was capable of doing that. And it also fulfilled my desire to stay on the air calling games. So it allowed me to do, uh, to do both at the same time. And it worked out great for me that we had a local cable company that had some interest in doing it. And I was able to do the games and I, I did that until our first son was born. And after our first son was born at that time, that's when I decided that uh, I think I want to try broadcasting full time. And how often are you on the road? I mean, is it how many days, how many months? I know it's a lot. So how, how, how is that life on the road, so to speak? Well, I, because I have three children and I don't want to lose my mother of the year status, I try not to say <laughs> Exactly how much I'm gone. But, uh, you know, basketball has evolved into 365, 24-7 for me. Uh, I made a decision early in my career not to work on other sports just because I knew how much I loved basketball and I wanted to to work that angle. And um, other sports would uh, never allow me to be home at all. So um, I, um, I'm gone quite a bit. I mean, you know, I was recently reading a story about um, some broadcasters that were laying out, you know, some of the toughest stretches that they've ever had uh, calling games. I mean, I've had stretches where I've had 14 games and 15 nights in 14 different states. I've had stretches where I've done two games on the same day in two different states, one in Ohio, one in upstate New York. Uh, I've done two games on the same day um, in, in, uh, on the men's side, at, at one at North Carolina and at Duke. Um, which, you know, I, I've, I've had some incredible opportunity to work. Um, and I I'm feel very fortunate that I've had th this much opportunity. And when I was first starting in my career, ESPN was doing about 80 women's college games, and I was doing 80 by myself. So without working full time for ESPN. So I've, I've really worked hard to create a network. Uh, I've done this without an agent. I've never had an agent. I think everybody today has one. I don't know if anyone at my level is working without an agent. 
but I, I felt strongly about not having one because I, I built the relationships myself through my two stops at Kentucky and Ohio State. How do you juggle everything then? I mean, from family to job, I mean, you're your own self-promoter. You don't have an agent. How do you prioritize things in your life? Well, I'm, I'm not interested in finding a day off. I, I look for quality time with my family when I'm home. I work really hard and stay focused on the, uh, the, the amount of time I need for work. Uh, I just have a great husband who helps me figure it out. I have two or th- excuse me, three boys that really understand what I do. They don't know it any other way. This is the way they've always known it because this is the way they've grown up. And um, we just figure it out. Uh, there are times when I wish I had an assistant. <laughs> if, uh, if you saw what my office looked like, um, you would see why I would need one. Uh, but it's a, uh, it's a love for the game. It's, and it's a passion for the people that are in the game. And, uh, and that's on the men and the women's side. That's not just the women. Um, and uh, I feel very fortunate to do what I get to do. So was there a moment when they came to the realization that mom's a big deal? She's one of the most well-known <laughs> college basketball analysts and WNBA analysts out there? None of my guys ever think about me like that. <laughs> You're um, just mom. <laughs> that it lasts. I've had a couple of moments where uh, I remember uh, my oldest son was in middle school and he came home one day and he said, "Mom, did you interview Tyler Hansbrough for North Carolina last night?" And I said, "Yeah, I did." You interviewed Tyler Hansbrough? I said, "Yeah, <laughs> I interviewed him after the game." Well, because the guys were talking about it at lunch, and they thought that was really cool that they saw you doing the interview. And I went, yeah, well, you know, Joey, that's what I do. And he's like, (laughs) wow. It lasted about two minutes because then I asked him to take the trash out, and then I had to ask him five times. (laughs) Exactly. Then he's ignoring you at that point, right? (laughs) He's got selective hearing. (laughs) There's no – any parent would know that, you know, your kids are the ones that really, truly keep you humble. You can't get too high or too low. They, uh, they don't really care, um, you know, about all that. They just want to know, you know, that you're taking care of them and providing for them what they need. But, no, I've got three great boys, and uh, my husband's terrific, too. So it's a, we call it Team Antonelli in every aspect of what we do. Of course. And you mentioned what we talked about previously in terms of wanting to prove people wrong and you've been able to call men's college basketball games, which there's not many females that have done that. So did you ever have pushback when you first started calling men's games that people didn't think that you could do it? Uh, of course. Uh, and still today, if you follow social media, I'm sure you can see there's a lot of people that think that women shouldn't be on any male sport uh, for some reason. Um, I don't know why they feel that strongly about it, but um uh, you know, I, I like to say, um, you know, you can criticize my voice or you can criticize something about, you know, my opinion or whatever. But if you want to start talking about pick and roll and breaking the game down, you want to start talking about running the Princeton offense or you want to dive into any of that, well, bring it on. You know, <laughs> bring it. But if you just want to talk about you don't think that women should be calling men's games, then you don't have a good reason. I, I, I just sort of dismiss that. that. I have no place for that. Uh, but I, w- I will say this, you know, 2017, when CBS called me and asked me if I could work the men's tournament as an analyst, I had worked the men's tournament in the past, in the 90s, as a reporter. But that was a long time ago, and uh, I didn't even know CBS was considering me for that role. While I have worked for them for 20-plus years, 
I didn't know that they would think um, of me in that role. And, and this is probably one of the downsides of not having an agent. So I didn't have anybody sitting, you know, at the table talking to them about why wouldn't you consider Debbie? And I think they had been considering me for a while, but I just didn't know it. Um, and when they called me and asked me, uh, I had to get permission from ESPN. ESPN was, was, of course, excited and thrilled for me. It went all the way up the chain through the management, and the management team came back with, of course, a yes. Uh, and 2017 was a really interesting year for women in sport. I don't know if a lot of people have looked at it this way, but, you know, Doris Burke got the NBA gig. Uh, after I got the CBS gig, Beth Mowens got the CBS play-by-play uh, -play and the Monday Night Football for ESPN. Those two things opened up for her. You know, Jess Mendoza had been doing uh, Sunday Night Baseball, I think, the year before. So um, that is, you know, was still somewhat new. And then there was a, a young woman who had gotten the uh, lead analyst position on Fox for uh, some World Cup soccer. So there were a lot of things happening, and they all seemed to happen at the same time. And, um, you know, the first year on CBS, it was a big deal media-wise. Uh, I mean, I had the New York Times uh, photographer was in my house for an hour and a half following me around. Uh, which I thought was really interesting since I've been working in the men's game since the mid-90s. But then last year, uh, there were only one or two articles written about me doing the game. So I felt like that was a, a, actually a step forward. Yes, it was. And I know nobody can question your knowledge of the game of basketball. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And speaking of knowledge, as we wrap up here, you've already shared some of your power words. But what about any other words of wisdom, Debbie, that has meant a lot to you that you'd like to share? And it could be any other phrases, quotes, mottos, or just life advice. Well, I, I want to say this because this is a big part of who I am and helped shape um, my decisions and my power words. Uh, I did mention I have three boys. My middle son, Frankie, is uh, a student at Clemson University in the LIFE program. LIFE stands for Learning is for Everyone. Uh, he's my middle son. He's 21, and he has uh, Down syndrome. When he was born, no one ever believed, and certainly we didn't, that, that college would even be an option. Um, for anybody with intellectual disability, post-secondary options weren't available, and now they are, and they're popping up all over the country. And uh, I think about the journey that we've had with, with our son through um, some very challenging times. Fortunately, he's healthy, but a lot of people see him and they don't believe. They say he can't and he won't and he doesn't. And I think they're judging a book by its cover. So I would alert everyone to really think about two things that I think about involving my son. And one of them is don't judge a book by its cover. The other is you really don't know anything about somebody until you walk a mile in their shoes. Those are two old cliches that are very prevalent in my life, and, and I think about the things that and decisions that we've made and how we've raised our boys, especially how we've gone about with Team Antonelli around my son Frankie, and he is an incredible success. And um, there was a lot of advocacy and a lot of push, but there were um, a lot of people that didn't believe, but I always believed. And so I'm a very strong advocate for him. And I would encourage uh, people out there that see someone that might look a little different or they haven't absolutely accepted adversity or diversity or inclusion, then I think they need to take a, a strong look in the mirror about trying to be kind to everyone. But for those that are working and from, from a professional standpoint, you know, for me, like I said before, I'm, I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm trying to improve, and that's the way I go about my day. And that's, those are the things that I think about right now besides Bill serving and power. 
Well said, and I'm a big advocate of the Clemson Life Program. I'm a Clemson grad. My son is a freshman at Clemson right now as well, so we've got that in common, and I couldn't agree with you more in terms of it's a great program and just allows people to see from a different lens that uh, a lot of these individuals can do things, and obviously you're preaching that with the Antonelli, Team Antonelli, I should say, because it seems like it's in your DNA. You're not allowed to quit if you're an Antonelli. <laughs> and, uh, so, Debbie, I can't thank you enough, though, for letting me harass you and steal some of your time and just learning a little bit more about your journey. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be interested, Richmond, and uh, for um, making time yourself to, to hear a little bit about my story. I hope there's somebody out there that it helps. It definitely will. Debbie, I look forward to staying connected with you and seeing you out on the trail, the the college basketball trail, I should say. We will see you on the road. Motivation to be successful can come in all types of forms, whether it's to prove doubters wrong or to prove believers right. And often we can become so narrowly focused on this motivation that it doesn't allow us to grow. But when you can change your viewpoint like Debbie has been able to do, where she's focusing on improving, then that's when you will truly find a path of success, which ultimately then becomes long-term success. Now that finishes episode 94. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.